Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Most of us, I think, like the word new. Especially, we like that word new if what we currently possess is broken or worn out. Whenever we view something we have as tired or no longer working, we are immediately drawn, at least I am, to the promotion of something new. I mean, our expectation is the new will be better than the old. But as many of us know, the promise of newness doesn't always live up to the hype. Change does not always equal improvement or progress. More often than not, the adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same, proves true. I mean, after all, despite continued boasting about the advancement of society, if you really stop and think about it, life in general hasn't changed all that much. Sure, we've countered some diseases, we've made strides in productivity and efficiency, we've extended our ability to communicate with each other, And yet, at the same time, every generation seems to contend with the same struggles, the same pitfalls, the same shortcomings. When you look at it that way, as we find ourselves in the same old world, facing the same old problems, you can't help but observe this relentless circularity and corresponding weariness to life. And it's easy to lose hope, to feel helpless, It's tempting, oh boy is it tempting, to become cynical and pessimistic. It's hard sometimes to see anything but doom and gloom on the horizon. Yet, as we turn to the last book of the Bible and pay attention to Jesus' very last words on this earth in life as we know it, this life as we know it, we're going to discover a different message. A promise that may sound like a fantasy to some, or at best to others, a promise that we must wait to see fulfilled someday. As we're about to learn, what Jesus proclaims is more than wishful thinking. It is more than a future hope. It's an invitation to see and live not in terms of an ending, but in light of a new everlasting beginning. So if you have those Bibles open, read with me from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible for some reason, the words are on the screen. It reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Revelation. If you're not familiar with it, it's a vision given to the Apostle John during the end of the first century A.D. while he was exiled to a place called Patmos, an island off the coast of modern Turkey. And we should begin this morning by acknowledging that for many people who have heard of this book, Revelation proves to be a very difficult and challenging read. Filled with various images and symbols, descriptions of angels and horsemen, a dragon, a beast, seals being broken open, the great lake of fire and judgment. Some people can get really worked up about this book. I mean, some Christians avoid reading Revelation altogether, like they just ignore that part of the Bible. Whereas others, other Christians, read nothing else but the book of Revelation in their Bible. And really, as one of the most abused and misused books in the Bible, Revelation has sadly caused more controversy, dividing people in the church rather than bringing them together. And there's a lot more that I could say about this, but for the purposes of today's message, we're going to focus on one, one big, huge, interpretive misunderstanding about this book as a whole that this passage explicitly challenges. Now, if you were to ask the average person, Christian or non-Christian, what's the book of Revelation about? What's What's the ultimate outcome of the book of Revelation? You'd likely hear that it's all about the end of the world. While Jesus whisks away all those who have believed to him in him to heaven for all eternity. In other words, that encapsulation of the book of Revelation that most people hold in their minds, in other words, it's out with the old and in with the new as Christ wipes everything out and starts over. And yet, if we pay close attention to what we just read, to what John describes, it becomes undeniably clear that Jesus isn't going to conduct some ground evacuation of launching souls into heaven for eternity. No, as John records, God in Christ comes down one last everlasting time to dwell with all creation. No one is whisked away to heaven, sorry, because heaven, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down to earth. And the newness that arrives, that John describes, that Jesus unveils before him, the newness that arrives is not ultimately destructive, obliterating everything that once was and replacing it with something entirely new. You see, in the original language of the Bible, Greek, two words are used in our Bibles and translated into English as new. But these two words, while similar, have very different nuanced meanings. The first word we might find in our Bibles if we were to read it in Greek that's translated into the word new is the Greek word neos. And it refers to something fresh, brand new, recently created, something that didn't exist before. The other biblical word we might find if we were reading it in Greek that's translated into English as new is the Greek word kainos. Kainos, which refers to something new in quality, something different in nature from the old, something better than the one that came before it, so much so it fulfills and even surpasses the original model. You might think new and improved. To appreciate the difference between these two words, 
Consider when we speak about fixing up an old house so that it's good as new. We're talking about new in the kainos sense, the kainos sense. We're not building a new house per se. We're restoring or renewing the house, making the house consistent with the model of the last one, and yet, by contrast, radically transforming it. Its capacity, its beauty, its substance, its quality into something that didn't exist before. As John records his vision of a new heaven and a new earth, as John writes down Jesus' proclamation of making all things new, kainos, kainos is the word he uses to express what's new. In other words, the point is that it isn't out with the old and in with the new with Jesus. No, Jesus is making all things kainos, renewing all creation, renewing all things, including us, by the way, consistent with God's original intent, and yet in a way that far exceeds what has come before. To better appreciate what's new, let's take a closer look at the majestic and encouraging picture that's unveiled before us The fullness of which, by the way, encompasses more than the five verses we read. The fullness of this picture that I'm going to describe, just if you want to look at it later, is all of chapter 21 and all of the final chapter of Revelation, chapter 22. So I'm going to go beyond the five verses that we read to start. But if we step back to just look at this incredible picture, if we step back and start by keeping in our mind's eye how it was in the beginning, all the way back at the genesis of our story, Remember where our creator fashioned a garden and against the canvas of the cosmos told us to cultivate and fill it. We remember that what the first thing that should stand out to us when we look at this picture is we see that flourishing garden of life and healing again. But now that garden is also different because at its center lies a great city. A great city filled, as John describes, with all the nations of the world in a collaborative, creative partnership of worshiping and glorifying God together. It's a city, John goes on to describe, without borders, where the barriers we construct, the walls between us that we insist on building, are not part of the design. The gates of this city, notice this if you go back and look at it, are not built to keep anyone out. But in remaining forever open, these gates serve as both a welcome and an invitation to all who seek to enter. And what powers, what centers, what guides the life of this epic metropolis is unlike anything that has forged, fueled, or focused any other city we've ever known. Again, back in the beginning, you'll remember God created the sun and the stars for there to be light and life. But now in John's vision, while the sun and the stars don't go away, they remain in their place, there is no vital need for the brilliance of these celestial wonders because the glory of God's presence gives light and life to all creation. And the transformative impact of this light, of God in Christ forever dwelling with all humanity, it becomes apparent, as John notes, the absence of a temple the absence of any kind of church building in the Garden City. No longer is God's presence confined by the presumed physical or mental constructs of humankind. No longer is there any divide between the sacred and the secular. 
Every square inch of creation becomes sacred space because God in Christ dwells fully and completely, no longer temporally, but eternally with all people. And with Jesus coming down, John also strangely describes, it's really quick, you might have missed it, John strangely describes there no longer being any sea. Now, John is not necessarily speaking literally here. As we can scan this picture in chapters 21 and 22, we can scan this picture and still find water. Bodies of water like a flowing river. No, biblically, the sea always represents chaos and disorder. It's not the ocean that dissolves away in God's restoration project. It is the instability, the confusion and turmoil of a once broken creation that is laid to rest. It is the passing away, as John details, of everything that inflicts suffering upon us, that steals our joy, that robs us of life, death, mourning, crying, and pain. All these deadly marks of a violated, hurt, sick, bitter, and vengeful world, all these inevitable byproducts from distancing ourselves from our Creator are no more as the God from whom humanity once hid in shame. That God brings us home by making his home with us once and for all. My friends, this is the message. This is the gospel of revelation. Not an escape from reality, but the remaking of reality. What we anticipate is not some countdown to detonation and the annihilation of a creation that our creator first labeled as very good. No, what is happening, what is dawning, is the redemption and transformation of a divine building project that our creator has not and will not ever forsake, but rather unrelentingly persists in willing its completion. Why this is so important is, beloved, once we get the message, once we actually begin to comprehend the masterpiece that Jesus paints through John's words, we start to realize a few things we might have been missing all this time. And the first thing that we might be missing, the first thing, in fact, we need to do is to temper any sense of optimism we have in the human condition apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because still to this day, many people, perhaps with the best of intentions, let me be clear about that, many people with the best of intentions perceive all the problems, the brokenness of this world, as fixable by humanity. If only the right philosophy of life, if only the right system of government, if only the right economic policy, if only the right leaders were given the opportunity to do so, we could fix all the problems in this world. Even Christians can buy into such thinking, especially when the gospel is reduced to individual forgiveness and salvation. When the gospel just becomes, Jesus died for my sins, Jesus forgives me, I'm going to heaven when I die. Because when the gospel gets reduced to individual forgiveness and salvation, which I hammer a lot, I know, we miss understanding that the gospel is not just about only you or me or even us. 
we miss something so important that all creation needs and is longing for its redemption in Christ. Put this another way. Broken, flawed, imperfect people cannot ultimately fix or heal a wounded, chaotic, and dysfunctional world. We can't fix it because we aren't just part of the problem. Fundamentally, we are the problem. Something that underscores what the truth of what I'm saying here is, and it's really, you can look past it, is notice, this is small but significant, the garden city of the future that John describes comes down from heaven. Comes down from heaven. This garden city that we see in this picture, in other words, is not the final evolution of human ingenuity and effort. It's not our building project at all. The complete, not just repair, but renovation and transformation of all creation is beyond our ability to conceive or build ourselves. Such a future is built solely on the work of Christ. It's an emerging gift of grace. And as a gift of grace, like every other gift of grace, it should put in humble perspective the overestimated value and impact we understand that our jobs, our efforts, our resources, even our politics have in view of reality. The stuff that we get very, very upset about, very, very animated about. My job, what I do, my career, my stuff, my resources, our politics. When you look at it in terms of this picture, it all amounts to about this. This. Because ultimately it's a gift of grace. Now, you might be thinking, well... If that's true, then what am we here for? What does that matter? What's it all about? And I want to be real clear, and this picture also shows us something else, that at the same time, in the midst of everything that I just said being true, at the same time, this does not mean, this picture does not show us that we are irrelevant bystanders or passive consumers of Christ's ongoing restoration project. And this brings us to the second thing we need to realize from this divine snapshot given to us by John. If the work of Christ is renewing all things, restoring and not destroying, transforming all creation in line with what God planned from the beginning, then that is a significant and powerful affirmation of the value of our material world as well as our decisions and actions as a part of it. Too many people, sadly influenced by flawed teaching about this book, or just lacking any belief in a life beyond this one, view and treat creation. And by creation, I'm referring to the planet. I'm referring to fellow human beings. I'm referring to even our own bodies. Too many people view creation as disposable and inconsequential. Having no value beyond one's immediate use or enjoyment. But if the world and all that is in it If all creation matters to Jesus, so much so that Christ promises not to forsake it, but works even now to redeem and renew it, then we ought to value the planet. We ought to value each other. We ought to value our bodies with as much esteem and value as our Creator does. More than this, being given the gift of the opportunity of seeing what John sees— We dare not sit back and wait for tomorrow to come 
just killing time until Jesus returns or we depart from this life. Because we've been given our marching orders, church. After all, while it is Christ alone, Christ alone, who can and is making all things new, those who follow Jesus are commissioned by the instruction of the Word and the filling of the Spirit to become vessels, to become witnesses of the renewing work of Christ in our little corner of an ever-changing world. No, we can't fix all the problems of this world. No, we're unable to change hearts and minds. The redemption and transformation of lives, families, communities, nations are beyond our purview. However, through abiding and obediently following wherever and to whomever Jesus leads us, we can, by the grace of God, speak life-giving words into hearts and minds that need to be changed. We can learn, again, by the grace of God, to see and gain the strength and resources to respond to the basic needs of another person in the name of Jesus. Sometimes all it takes, by the way, is a willingness just to be present and listen. We can learn to see and gain the strength and resources to respond to the basic needs of another person in the name of Jesus, and in so doing, allow the Spirit to sow the mustard seeds of salvation that can grow and transform families, neighborhoods, and yes, even nations. And this brings us to the third and final insight we glean from this portrait in Revelation, what Jesus shows to John. What Jesus shows to John isn't some work Christ will be undertaking tomorrow or someday. This divine restoration and renewal project is what Jesus is about here and now. This is probably the most important point in this message. Here and now. We don't get it, do we? You want to take away. Here it is. We are so fixated on the end, the last days, what will happen and when will it happen, that we're missing the whole point of the book of Revelation. We're not supposed to be looking for an ending. We're not supposed to be looking for an ending. We've been called to start living in light of a new beginning. We've not been commanded to sit idly by and wait for the last days. We've been commissioned to bear witness to the ends of the earth of the rise, the dawn of the first day of a new creation. Now, I get it. This may be hard for us to appreciate because we tend to see things in a very linear fashion. You know, yesterday, today, tomorrow. We're a very in-the-moment kind of people. Our inclination is to receive what God in Christ has promised, what Jesus shows John is happening. We, we, our inclination is to perceive it as far away, just out of reach. But what is distinctive about the book of Revelation, the vision Jesus gives John, and by extension to us, is that it offers an eternal perspective. It offers us a vision outside of time. It's a vision not just of the future, of what's coming later. It's a vision of how the future is already breaking into the present. Of how the forces of heaven are interceding now. This is the view of eternity. And think about it. Eternity is not infinite, endless time. Eternity is 
no time. There is no past, present, or future with God. All is present with God. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I do not change. To put it even more simply, I don't know how you think about this sometimes, but Jesus doesn't ever take a day off or get backlogged, fall behind. All events are present to God and Christ moves and acts. It's our perspective, framed by time, that distorts our perception as if God is delayed, as if God is absent. This is heady stuff, so I'm going to use an analogy that I often find helpful, and the analogy that I often use is to think of a parade. And growing up on the East Coast, I'm going to mention one of my favorite parades, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, on, on Thanksgiving, obviously. Imagine any parade you want, okay? Imagine any parade you want. If we're on the street for the parade, we see the various floats, the giant balloons, the marching bands pass by us in sequence, Right? But we're only experiencing what's right in front of us, even as the whole parade is in fact happening. If, however, we were high up in one of the buildings in New York City for this parade, overlooking the parade route, we'd be able to see the entire thing. Now everything becomes present for us, not in part, but in whole. By our sight alone, we can only perceive and experience one event at a time. But from the eternal vantage point of God, in terms of how the Lord works, all events are present, happening now, in what we call now. Another example, hopefully this helps, is consider the work of the cross. You know, we're doing these questions starting next week, that sermon series, but a question that is not in there but often comes up, people will often ask me, you know, what about people of faith who died before Jesus' work on the cross? I mean, we can't go back in time, so what about them? And the answer is, the salvation Jesus accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection is eternal. It's not limited by time. In that moment, those temporal moments we call Good Friday and Easter, two things were happening in that present moment that were both past and future. Jesus, in that moment that we would consider the present, was at the same time saving those who looked forward to him by faith in the past, and in that present moment was also saving those who would look back to him by faith from the future. Us. In much the same way, what John describes as a vision of the future is the reality of Christ working, bringing again what we perceive as the future amid what we call the present. And here's the thing. This work of Christ, of making all things new, it actually began the moment Jesus walked out of an empty tomb, defeating sin, evil, and death, and breathing his eternal spirit, his life-giving presence, the power of his victorious resurrection upon all who follow him. From that very moment, the gospel we received and the spirit that continues to be poured out both compel and empower us forward in reflecting not a message of gloom and doom, not repent for the end is nigh, but rather the good news of the invitation, the assurance, the hope of a divine restoration 
and renewal project that has already begun of heaven breaking into the earth even now, of the weight and glory of eternity infiltrating this ever-present darkness. Looking around, and I, I'm with you. I, I can see some looks on faces. Because let's be honest, okay? Let's, let's be honest. Hearing the gospel is one thing. Seeing and experiencing the gospel bearing out Bearing fruit in this broken and weary world can, on the other hand, be challenging. Man, that sounds good, Pastor Chris. But I'm struggling to see it. And let me let, just say from the outset, we're in good company because this was no less true for the Apostle John to whom this vision was first given. If you don't know John's circumstances... John, living in exile, watching followers of Jesus like himself face increasing persecution and suffering, many being led to their deaths, believing that the church that started out so strong was literally on the verge of becoming extinct, John was left confused and uncertain. And 2,000 years later, more than 2,000 years later, many of us perceive and feel as John did, that by all appearances the surrounding world appears unchanged, very much the same as it ever was, if not worse. Acts of violence erupt all around us, be it the gunning down of children in schools, the never-ending rising tide of war, or the devastating wake left by natural disasters all around the globe. Death and decay in forms of disease, starvation, homelessness, addiction, mental health crises, etc. still seem to rule the day. Polarization, division, cancellation mar both our ability and our willingness to communicate and trust each other, let alone our leaders and the very institutions designed to protect us and hold us together. Sometimes it sure feels like the whole world going to hell in a handbasket. Where can we find the good news amid so much bad news? Beloved, we can only perceive the good news if we start looking from a different perspective. The same point of view that John needed. That's why he was given this vision and why he gives it to us. The same point of view that John needed, an eternal one. God's perspective. We need the point of view offered to us in Revelation, the picture, the insight that Jesus coming back, that God in Christ wins. Game over are not merely predictions of the future. They are both the inbreaking, ongoing reality of our present. And we can see John's vision already becoming a present reality if we look at the endurance and growth of Christ's body, the church. Despite incredible opposition, despite life-threatening persecution, despite, I regret to say, even tremendous internal abuse and moral failure, the body of Christ continues to rise and heal. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of followers of Christ keep bearing faithful, humble witness to the risen, living person of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the reality of the kingdom of God. And though we are tempted to pay attention to those who fail to do so, we ignore the greater numbers, the rising numbers, of those who do so, who love and serve, not for the sake of their own glory or profit, but for the sake of unconditionally loving and serving those most in need. 
the overlooked, the marginalized, the forsaken, the abandoned. We can see John's vision already becoming a present reality through the unquenchable fire of our faith. The faith of Jesus Christ doggedly persists despite continued predictions, and they just keep coming, that, it, that faith is dead or dying or that it's going to eventually fizzle out. Not going to happen. Even though our perception is often clouded by news reporting and media, more fixated on what sells than what inspires, we can see John's vision is already becoming a present reality through the continuing endurance of acts of forgiveness and reconciliation in a world that seems obsessed with vindictiveness and retaliation. Through the persistent call and growing mobilization for mercy and justice in lives marked by enslavement, oppression, and marginalization. Through the unwavering courage of those who cross lines instead of drawing them. Who build bridges even as they tear down walls. Can be seen. It's not hidden. But perception, as they say, is reality. Perception, as they say, is reality. And that means the question is, whose point of view are we taking? Whose point of view are we taking? Are we living each day based on what we can see at ground level? Or are we living each day from the vantage point of what the Lord shows us, that rooftop view of eternity? Are we hopelessly, hopelessly waiting for our future with Jesus to come someday Or are we living, hopefully, out of the vision we have been given that our future has already started in Christ? And beloved, the point of view we are taking becomes clear through the kind of prayers we're making. The point of view we are taking becomes clear through the kind of prayers we are making. And I don't know about you, but I'll confess my prayers are often puny. feel very weird saying that out loud. But my prayers are often puny. Because rather than just talking to God, I talk myself into asking for what's reasonable. I talk myself into asking for what's logical, what's feasible from my vantage point. My prayers are often puny because I so easily have grown accustomed to focusing on maintaining the status quo, you know? Not losing what I have. Settling for less instead of dreaming with God about something more. What the Lord desires to bring about, not just in my life, but in this world. My prayers are often puny because I've become so convinced people will never change, including myself. That I lose sight of the God who can change, who's in the business of transforming people. My prayers are puny because I see the world. I come to God as a grown-up with a sober, measured view of the way the world works. With manageable, so-called mature expectations about what's possible. I've been thinking a lot lately, for a long time. What if I started? What if we started coming to God like we're called to? Coming to God like Jesus directs us to be, 
like the children of God that we are. What if I prayed? What if we prayed to God like a little kid? You know, where nothing seems impossible, where no dream is considered too big. What if we prayed as though Jesus is actually able to do something now, listening and letting our Heavenly Father fill us with all kinds of crazy, imaginative, radical ideas for marking each other, marking this world not with continual touches of black, white, or gray, but marking this world and marking each other with flourishes of color, color that brightens, color that beautifies, color that enlivens the canvas of creation, color that enlivens the canvas of another person's life. What if I, what if we read Revelation less like grown-ups, trying to crack the code and figure out the ending, And instead, embrace the vision Jesus gives to John with the wonder and imagination of children. Perceiving not a conclusion, but the vantage point of a new beginning. Beloved, we need to stop observing the march of time, watching the grand parade from the ground level. We need to let our heads be lifted up by Christ, up to see things from an eternal perspective, from that rooftop view of the grand parade, As Jesus shifts our perspective, he's inviting us not just to watch, but to be a part of all the ways in which he is already working to make all things new. And embracing that invitation means learning to live out of a posture of expectation, following Jesus by regularly looking for Christ as he goes before us. That's what following means, by the way. Where is Jesus today? Where is Jesus right now? Not following Jesus as if he's just sitting on the throne. But if Jesus is on the move, we become more attuned to those who are like, I I don't hear God, I don't see God, I don't see Jesus. It's not hard. We become more attuned to the presence and work of Jesus among us. He's not hiding. By intentionally being in the Word and listening for the Spirit. And I'm sorry, and this is for me too, What are you filling your mind and heart with? What's all the other noise and crap that you're listening to and paying attention to? Because there's no room for you to see any or hear anything else. And don't tell me the Bible's too hard. It's not that hard. There's harder things that you're able to engage and wrestle with and dialogue about. Me too. Don't tell me, I just don't really understand the Holy Spirit. You don't have to understand the Holy Spirit. Nobody understands the Holy Spirit. You just have to listen. You just have to go, and I, I don't know, again, I can only speak for myself, <laughs> and we're going to talk about this, one of the questions, but the voice of the Spirit is very, very distinctive in my life. And I don't know, maybe this is really helpful for you, it's helpful for me. You know how the voice is very, very distinctive in my life? Because it sounds nothing like me. When the Spirit starts to sound like me, that ain't the Spirit. <laughs> when the Spirit, where did, uh, What? That's not, I'm, I'm not wired that way. That's not my personality. You know, that's actually not what I had planned today. Voice of the Spirit. We become more attuned to the presence and work of Jesus among us by intentionally being in the Word and listening for the Spirit because when we're in the Word and we listen to the Spirit, you've got to make space, you've got to make time. It informs and shapes. It replaces all that other junk in informing and shaping how we think. 
Where do you think your thoughts come from? Do you think you came up with these original thoughts? You know, Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. It might be the, the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Nobody has an original thought. Those thoughts are coming from somewhere. They're either coming from God or they're coming from somewhere else. The thoughts of God are distinctive because they don't sound like everything else. But that's how. They, it intentionally shapes how we think and it intentionally shapes how we speak. What's coming out of your mouth? What are you saying out loud to yourself, let alone to another person? It shapes how we view and interact with this world and the people in it. How are you going out into that world? How do you look at the world? Are you afraid? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Are you coming like this? Are you running for cover? Because embracing Christ's invitation in this picture means, with rare exception, we no longer believe in coincidences. And we no longer become frustrated by distractions in our plans. Instead, we will recognize those seeming coincidences, those unwanted interruptions as divine opportunities, divine appointments, reorienting us, by the way, to how the Lord is present and moving in our midst. A lot of times we go, I don't see it, I don't hear God. It's because we're not willing to let go of our plans, of our view that's an interruption. That's a distraction. That's a coincidence. Not right time. Who's in charge? God's inviting us to be a part of his plans, to become vessels of his grace. But you have to be ready. You have to be sensitive to wherever and with whomever you find yourself. Embracing Christ's invitation means we're no longer going to allow ourselves to be blinded by all the anger, by all the suspicion and cynicism circulating around us. And instead, we will choose, choose to see what John sees, what God shows us will be, what is coming even now. Do you see it? Can you picture it? Are you looking at it? A world without the divisions of class, denomination, politics, gender, culture, or the color of one's skin. A world without walls between us, where we no longer close ourselves off from each other in fear or dismissal, but instead open our homes, open our lives, open our hearts and our minds to listen, to understand, to love the people with whom we share this life. A world where peace isn't a compromise or a bargain made by some at the expense of others. But a world where everyone experiences the peace of God in all its fullness, in all its shalom. Peace with God, peace within ourselves, peace between each other, and peace with creation itself. A world where the only tears are tears of joy and the only cries are cries of laughter. Beloved, let us open the door and let Christ lead our lives into starting to live tomorrow today. Let we whom God has reconciled to himself in Christ, we who follow Jesus, reflect the new creation the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians declares us to already be. Let us open our eyes and see when and where the risen and living Christ is reigning on our streets, in our neighborhoods, in the particular corner of the world where the Lord has called us. Let us stand and speak as a people of faith, hope, and love, not just praying, but seeking for God's kingdom to come, for the Lord's will to be done in and through us. Because eternity has broken into our reality. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh came down in Christ. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And yes, Jesus will come again. But in fact, Jesus is already on the move for Christ has given us his spirit. His Holy Spirit who through jars of clay like you and me is working even now to make all things new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.